I've got some treasures to show you this morning. Because the truth is, we live in uncertain and unstable times. If you realize that we live in uncertain and unstable times, could you say amen? amen. And we have since Genesis 3. Nothing in our reality is certain. You see, even today, stock markets crash. Families divide. Cancer comes crashing in. Depression paralyzes. Death divides people. Nations are struck down. When you least expect it, betrayal shocks. Addiction comes in and takes over and it harms. Poverty prevails in many areas. Suffering seems to succeed. At the end of the day, it seems that sin rules. The question as we walk into this passage is this, is there any lasting real hope here in a world that is uncertain and unstable? The church has always been through dark times, but one of the greatest droughts in the history of the church occurred during a time when a German Bible professor named Martin Luther, before he was even saved, began expounding the Psalms. It happened on August 16, 1513. In 1517, he published his first book, which was an exposition of the penitential Psalms. Martin Luther, after he preached through Psalms at some debatable point, was studying through Romans 1.17, and in some way God would use that verse, the just shall live by faith, and explode that verse into his heart, which would lead to salvation, which would lead to reformation, which would lead to the tower experience. But before he had that towering experience with God, Martin Luther studied through the Psalms, which is what he called, quote, the Bible in miniature. And he got a towering view of who God is. Martin Luther would say that Romans gave him his theology, but the Psalms gave him his thunder and his fortification to stand against the entire Roman Empire. Luther said, next to theology, I accord the highest place to music. And so in this overhaul in theology, overflowed in an overhaul of hymnals and music and congregational singing. I want to take you to the year 1527. It was the most difficult year of Martin Luther's life. Ten years had grinded on his life through the demands of leading the Protestant Reformation when all of a sudden, during a sermon on April 22nd, a dizzy spell came over Luther. He couldn't even finish the sermon. He got down from the pulpit and he thought that he was going to die. On July 6th, he was eating dinner with friends and he felt this acute buzzing in his ear and he laid down and again it came over him and he again thought that he was on death's doorstep. Heart problems, severe intestinal complications began to escalate and it got to the point where Luther would say this, I spent more than a week in death and hell. My entire body was in pain and I still trembled. Completely abandoned by Christ, I labored until the vacillations and storms of depression and blasphemy against God. What was worst was the dreaded plague 
had swept through Europe and entered Germany and into Wittenberg. Everybody feared for their lives. They ran because people were dropping dead like that and like that. And when the Luthers could have ran out, they chose to stay. And what they did was they opened their home as a sort of asylum and they began to invite all of these people into their home and they began to care for them. Luther and Katie believed that it was their first duty to care for the sick and the dying. Katie herself was pregnant with their second child and they began to watch friends drop like flies right before their faces. Without a warning, Luther's one-year-old son, Hans, was struck desperately ill. With death surrounding him on every side, Luther was driven to seek refuge, and the only refuge he could find was in God. At this point in his life, Psalm 46 became the strength of his soul like nothing in this world can provide. Luther explained the truths of Psalm 46, and he began to explain those as he began to write a song. And that song, that hymn, is one of the greatest hymns that's ever been penned. It's the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. You see, Martin Luther found solace and refuge in one of the lowest places of his life in Psalm 46, as so many other believers have. We've read this before, but this famous battle hymn reads this way, A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark, a defensive wall, never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord, say, Beoth, our host of heaven is His name, from age to age the same. And He must win the battle. You can picture Luther as he's watching friends drop. He's seeing his son seemingly on his deathbed. His confidence is shaken in everything in this world that he thought was sure. And he picks up pen and he puts it to paper and this is what comes out. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fail Him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through Him who with us sided. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. This became the national anthem of the Reformation. They said that as you walk through the streets on an average day, Peasants would be humming it through the streets. You would walk in to get groceries and they were singing it. It just rang out like a thunderstorm. Matter of fact, in his darkest of times, in his lowest of lows, Luther was very known to grab his great co-laborer and friend, Philip Melanchthon. 
And he was known for saying this, Come, Philip, let us sing the 46th Psalm. He famously said, we sing this song to the praise of God because God is with us and powerfully and miraculously preserves and defends His church and His Word against all fanatical spirits, against the gates of hell, against the implacable hatred of the devil and against all the assaults of the world, the flesh and sin. A mighty fortress is our God. Stand with me and let's read together this infamous Psalm that has encouraged so many believers through thousands of years of history. God is our refuge and strength, a very help, uh, present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. You may be seated. I want to give you just some brief background into the Psalms and then into this Psalm. Originally, the Hebrew songbook was entitled Praises. But by the recording of the Greek translation of the Old Testament in the second century B.C., it picked up the name Psalms, which means the plucking of strings, which would tell us that originally all of these were sung with an accompaniment of a stringed instrument, such as a harp or lyre. So these 150 poetic psalms cover a period of 1,000 years, and it took around 700 years to co compile. About half of them, exactly half of them, are attributed to David. There is no other book in the Bible that compares to the Psalms. It has the longest uh, chapter within it. It is the longest book of the Bible in itself. It covers the longest time period by far, and by far has the most authors. It has the shortest chapter in Scripture. It's literally placed in the center of the Bible. No book is quoted more often from the Old Testament into the New. As a matter of fact, Jesus Himself said, I'm the fulfillment of the Psalms. Uh, this book, the Psalms, is a library all by itself. And quite early, it was organized into five different books with different types of Psalms. And so we're going to survey a few of those different genres, those different 
type so that you can get a flavor. But what we see is that the Psalms are a reservoir of the soul. They reach deep into the lowest pains of the human heart. They reach high into the greatest pleasures of the human life. We find Psalm 46 right dab in the middle of book 2. Book 2 focuses on Israel's ruin and then their redemption and looks forward to a Davidic king who would come and fill the whole earth with his glory. There's parallels to the song of Moses in Exodus 15. So just as God subsided the seas and through His presence provided victory through the waters in Exodus 15, we see these Zion Psalms, which is where Psalm 46 focus on how God would lead His people through stormy waters and would rule them one day through a king who would be called Christ. So the running theme throughout this psalm that we'll see over and over is that God is present with His people. God is the peace of His people in times of turmoil. Friends, do your, do your seasons in life, do you ever get to a point to where it feels like your world's falling apart? If you would shake your head no, then just wake up for another day. Because we never know what each day is going to promise. And the question is this, where do you turn for strength? Where do you find security? Where do you find your deepest satisfaction in this life? Psalm 46 takes us by the throat and pushes our face toward God and shows us that God alone is our strength, God alone is our security, and God alone is our satisfaction. Let me show you just quickly where we're going. Look at the heading above Psalm 46. Look in your Bibles. Uh, likely these were added earlier, uh, later, I'm sorry, by an editor. Uh, but we might as well take them as inspired because in other places in the Bible, headings are inspired. And so it seems that they are, even though added later. So this would help the worship leader to know how to understand the psalm and know how to lead the temple choir. So look with me. He tells us exactly what's going on here to the choir master. So this is the temple choir director who's leading the choir in this psalm. Uh, you're going to like this, Adam. It's of the sons of Korah. You remember Korah? Korah was that rebel who went against God's people and God swallowed him into the earth. But God spared His children and they would become music leaders in the temple. It's either authored by them or performed by them. There's uh, hard to see for sure. But it's also according to Alamoth, which is a choir of young women referred to in 1 Chronicles 15. And it's a song, which means it would be obviously sung. What you're going to see in this psalm is the sacred name for God, Yahweh. You're going to see that three times, and you're going to notice in your Bible that it's in small caps. Do you see it in your Bibles? It shows us that's not just any name for God. That's the sacred strong name for God. We also see three divisions to where it neatly fits into three points separated by the word Selah. And then you're going to see this refrain, the Lord Almighty is with us. We're going to see three words for God. Not only Yahweh, but also Elohim and the Most High. We see in this psalm that we have a sure refuge. We see in this psalm that we have a sustaining river. And we see in this psalm that we have a sure 
rest. I want you to see, first of all, that we have a sure refuge in uncertain storms. He opens in the very beginning and throws us into natural disasters. Let's read together verses 1 through 3. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. As soon as we open the psalm, we're thrown into the middle of a world that's turned upside down. There's this upheaval. There's this earth-shaking confusion. But immediately, look in verse 1, we see that God is powerful over all of this. God is our refuge and strength. I was leaving church a few months ago, a couple months ago. And I came to the intersection right there at the hospital at the intersection of 14 and 231. And as I was pulling up to the light, there was one or two cars in front of me. All of a sudden, I heard this explosion. But it wasn't just an explosion. like It was a continued echoing. And I thought, what in the world is going on? I looked around. You're looking for a car crash. Nothing's happening. But as I look around, everybody around me on 14, on 231, behind me, everyone immediately is doing this. You ever hear a loud sound and immediately nobody has to tell you, you need to duck for cover. You need to find shelter. Well... There's an issue with the power lines. And so I'm looking up and there's this radiating lightning force. Keith can explain whatever all this stuff is. But all I know is I had to use the bathroom. And all I know is I was having to duck for cover. You say, what is a refuge? A refuge is an external defensive help. It's a hope. It's a structure that provides shelter and safety. It's where you go and die for cover when things get crazy. And in God, we find a shelter during the storm. In the book of Isaiah, God God rebuked His people because they were taking refuges and shelters in things that weren't shelters. Isaiah 28.15, they have made lies their refuge. Do we hide in false refuges? Money can be a shelter. Our position in this life, climbing the social ladder, can be a shelter. Social connections we can rely on as refuges to get us out of trouble, to move us up in life. Drugs and alcohol can easily be things that we turn to, pills to provide a shelter, a relief of safety in the storm. We turn to created things rather than the Creator of all things. And friends, what we realize in this life is that you and I have far less security in this world than we realize. Your security in this world is much less than what you think it is right now. Because we realize that it could be taken in an instant. And we run for cover. He says God is our strength. Not only do we hide in Him, we rest under His wings, we have an internal offensive help. You see, our strength is in recognizing our weakness. Because when we recognize that we're weak, we rely on His strength. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Did you know that the same God who raised Christ from the dead lives in you? And He, if you're a Christian, is your strength. He's your refuge. He is where you go and run for cover. He is where you dive during the storm. He is where you live, not only during the storm, but in every season of life in communion with Him. Because life is full of troubles. Job says, but man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. The Psalms reflect the anguish of this trouble of living life in a fallen world. It all started in a garden with Adam. It was taking a piece of forbidden fruit. And it all comes to climax in a second garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Christ would prepare to take on God's wrath for our sin. And it will, friends, all end in a garden when it's all made right again. The problem is we lack a proper perspective. And what the Psalms do is they meet us right where they are and they give us the perspective of God over our lives just as it finds us. At some point, the checkbook runs out. At some point, the kids or the spouse runs off. At some point, hope dries up. At some point, misery sets in. At some point, all you can see is discouragement and despondence. See, and in that point, you realize that all of that is only a half story. It's only part of the story. I want you to see what he says next. God is present through it all. He's a very present help in trouble. Now he explains the strength that he provides for us. God is our support. He's an assistance for the helpless. When he says in trouble, it literally means a tight or cramped place. Have you ever been in a situation that you would describe this way? It was like being between a rock and a hard place. We took a little tour of a cave a couple weeks ago. And at one point, going through this little cave on the way to Kentucky, it got so tight. Anybody claustrophobic? That I thought, if I do make it through here, I'm not getting out. <laughs> because I'm going to panic, and if something else doesn't kill me, I'm going to end up doing something that will kill myself. You see, we get in tight places where it feels like life is caving in. That's the picture of trouble. But what we see is that God's presence secures the victory. His absence secures defeat. And too often, it doesn't feel like God is present. It feels like God is distant. It feels like our prayers go no farther than the ceiling. So often, it doesn't feel like He's a help. It feels like He's weak. But the Bible says that God is present with us. David felt forsaken. He said... Why have you forsaken me? But he would say, be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. When he was on the run for his life, David said in Psalm 34, Oh, taste and see the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Psalm 34, 18, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed 
in spirit. In Psalm 73, David is envying the prosperity of the wicked. How come the bad guys always win and the good guys always lose? Why do the wicked always get the promotion and the righteous get fired? David said, but for me, what I realize is that it is good to be near God, not to envy the wicked. I have made the Lord God my refuge. He goes on in verses 2 and 3, and we see that God is not only present through it all, but He's the protector before it all. We see earth, we see mountains, we see seas, we see waters. It's a poetic device. What He's doing is He's taking mountains. And He's showing us the most stable things in this life that you can guarantee will never be moved. And He's picturing this reality, whatever that was, as the mountains being thrown into the sea. The immovable is being thrown into the sea as if it were a paperclip. And then that which is unstable, that which is changing, the waters roar in their fury. It's a tidal wave. Oftentimes this language would be used to describe the outpouring of God's judgment. The question as the psalmist shoves our face underneath the waters, as we're gasping for air in verses 2 and 3, is this, who can conquer the chaos of this world? The things that I knew were certain have been thrown into the sea. Disaster strikes without notice. You eat, you drink, and you're merry. You build bigger barns, and then your life is required of you at a moment's notice. Your security melts like a plastic figurine in a furnace. Psalm 102, of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They perish, but you remain. You see, in this life, what we realize is that people change. What you realize in ministry is that marriages shift from starry-eyed honeymoons all the way to empty nesters. Jobs are unstable, are they not, Terry? I mean, how many times do you have to go through this? Kids grow older, and the stable seasons of life are so often interrupted by an unpredictable fury. Brothers and sisters in Christ, how do you endure the changing seasons of life? I'll tell you from God's Word how we together endure the changing seasons of life. You tether yourself to something that doesn't ever change. And you tether your relationships and you tether your sense of security and identity and you tether your your marriage to things that don't change. And the only thing that never change is our rock and our refuge who comes to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ and He redeems us and rescues us and blesses us in Christ. In other words, what the psalmist is saying before we even get out of the gate is this. Friends, when the mountains tremble, we don't have to. When the waters are chaotic, we can be calm. And we can have a calm settled confidence in the character and sovereignty of God. Look in verse 2. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Fear can be rampant. 
I've never seen so many counseling issues in the church. Mike, would you agree with this? That seems so directly tied to fear. It's crippling. Fear can bring out some of the worst effects of the fall in our lives. A fear can put us in a season and a state that maybe this world would call manic depressive. Maybe it would call uh, schizophrenic. All sorts of crazy side effects that are rooted truly in not those worldly labels, but in fear. And the Bible teaches us that we need a proper fear of God, which gives us a proper understanding of man and the things of this earth. You see, in Genesis 1 and 2, God brought order from chaos. He conquered the chaos in creation. In Genesis 6-9, through we saw Wednesday night that the waters overtook the earth in the flood. Again, the chaos was unleashed through creation. And we see throughout the Bible and throughout human experience that God is sovereign over all of the waters in, in chaos. We have confidence in our theology. This is why we read the Bible. This is why we study the Bible. Because it's theology that plants our feet strong when the mountains give way. It's the fact that we know that God is sovereign. We know that God is good. And we know that God is working all things for His glory. And so we put our confidence in the One who controls all things and never changes. We come now to the million dollar question. Look at the end of verse 3. There's a word tucked away. And we have to stop for a minute and think about that. What word is it? Speak back. Selah. Do you see that in your Bibles? It neatly divides this psalm three different ways. And so the question is always asked, what does Selah mean? It oftentimes will divide a psalm. It seems to have been added later. It literally means to lift up. To lift up. Oh, we don't know what it means, what it's referring to. There's endless speculation. But we know that most likely it refers to one of two things. It either refers to lifting up the music. This could have been like a climax, a crescendo in the psalm as it was sung. Like in many of our hymns, when we get to the point where Christ will return, there is a climax to consider. Or it could have been a pause in the music, a sort of interlude. It could be not lifting up the music, but lifting up the mind. The psalmist may be saying this, this truth is so profound and life-changing that you need to stop and sit in silence and think about it and turn it over for a minute. God is your refuge when the mountains give way. Think about that. One way or the other, we don't know for sure, but it's a way of us giving attention carefully to this climax of revelation. And as we give attention to the fact that we have a sure refuge, we immediately turn our attention now to verse 4 where we see that we have a sustaining river of eternal satisfaction. I want you to see how the scene and the tone drastically changes after this pause. We move from natural disasters which take over the earth. Now we see natural distress that's woven throughout the earth. Look in verse 4. 
There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice. The earth melts. And here's that refrain that we'll see again in verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Let's say that together. Look in verse 7. This is what it would have been like. Read verse 7 all together. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So from the upheaval of nature, we see the raging of man. In the city of man, we see this roar of the waters. But I want you to notice what we see when we get to the city of God. We still see waters, but they're not roaring over the people. Instead, now these waters are used to refresh God's people. We see that God satisfies His people in verse 4. A river whose streams make glad the city of God. With God, they're no longer menacing seas. They're life-giving, calm streams. You see, in the ancient world, a city was dependent upon its water supply. And of all places in, in the earth, Jerusalem had very little of a firm, stable water supply that they could drink, that they could use. And so Hezekiah in 2 Kings 20 built an underground water cistern into the city. You see, what you realize when you read the Old Testament is that if you take a city's water supply, you take the city. You can't live without water. Water is a physical necessity for life. But even as it's a physical necessity of life, water also represents spiritual life. What does Psalm 1 say? Like a tree planted by what? Streams of water. What does Psalm 23 say? He leads me beside what? Still waters. Calm waters. It's a picture of God's peace flowing in our lives like a gently flowing river. Providing satisfaction, renewing the soul, providing prosperous fruit, and ultimately representing the presence of God Himself. God's Word in our life is like a nourishing, refreshing stream that just puts everything back into perspective. Psalm 36, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the rivers of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. God is a fountain of light, of life, of delights for us. I want you to see how this runs through the Bible. I want you to turn to two verses. We recently, I believe, have done this on Wednesday night, but I want you to see it again. Turn to Genesis chapter 2, verse 10. Right out of the gate in the Bible, we see rivers. Genesis 2, verse 10. If you remember... A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. This is a pre-fall, literal, refreshing river that 
forks out into streams. Hold your place right there. Don't move. Just listen. But then with the fall, we see water used symbolically. Jeremiah says in the, that God is saying to His people that they have committed two evils. And one of them is this, that they have forsaken the fountain of living waters. They're drinking from other wells to make them satisfied and happy. And he says these wells hold no water. It's a false refuge. But then in redemption, in John chapter 4, John chapter 7, Jesus says, come to me. What? The fountain of living waters and from your gut will flow the waters of eternal life. A satisfaction like nothing else in life can provide. But then I want you to see one more. I want you to see the end of the picture. Turn to the other end of the Bible, Revelation 22. In Revelation 22, if you'll recall, there is a flow of water, a stream that runs down the throne of God. We see this in Ezekiel. We see this through the prophets. And we see this come to a climax in Revelation. We need to go here often. We need to remember the end of the story. Revelation 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. He'll go on in verse 17 and he'll say, The one who is thirsty should come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Friends, this is what we do. This is why we gather. We are drinking from the refreshing waters of who God is and saying that no well in this world can satisfy. This is what we do all week. We hold forth this well. We offer this well to our friends, to our neighbors, to our co-workers. Drink from this well that won't run dry. You've tried everything else. Submit your life to God. Find a refuge and find a well. Turn back with me to Psalm 46. He says that there's a holy habitation. He's referring to Jerusalem, the Temple Mount. He says the city of God which is that earthly Jerusalem, which points to a heavenly community. The 5th century early church father, Augustine, wrote a book that he entitled The City of God. It's a classic work where he puts all of the city of man, what we see in this life, in perspective in light of the city of God to come. And we live for the city of God. An indestructible city without Sin. Charles Spurgeon said, This means that in seasons of trial, all sufficient grace will be given to enable us to endure to the end. The church is like a well-ordered city, surrounded with mighty walls of truth and justice, garrisoned by omnipotence. Spurgeon said, Beautifully built and adorned with infinite wisdom. Its citizens, the saints, enjoy high privileges. They trade with distant lands. They live in the smile of the king. As a great river is the making and the mainstay of a town, so is the broad river of God's everlasting love. God's grace becomes their joy and bliss. I want you to see wine, verses 5 and 6. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. 
He says the morning dawn, which is when the city would be most out to be attacked. It's at that point where God meets her there. There's two suggestions given to explain what's going on in the immediate context. And I want you to note both of them in your Bible. It could have been 2 Chronicles chapter 20. The author might have been in the middle of 2 Chronicles chapter 20 when Jehoshaphat appealed to God in light of enemy armies who were coming in to destroy Jerusalem. God promised to deliver them, and instead of fighting, they simply sat back and watched. And what they watched was not their own destruction, but those enemy armies began to turn on each other and destroy one another. And at that point, the Lord had told them, the battle is not yours, it's God's. If that isn't the setting, then one like it likely is. I want you to also remember 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19. Do you remember when the Assyrian king, King Sennacherib, he dispatched, dispatched his commander of his army to Jerusalem. And he stood up on the wall of Jerusalem and he began to taunt the people of Israel. Your God can't save you. Our God has destroyed every other nation. Who are you to say that your God's going to spare you now? And Hezekiah took in a letter from King Sennacherib. And he took it before God. And he almost begins to weep. And it's like he's saying, God, what are we going to do with this? They are going to destroy us. We have no chance before an army like this. And Isaiah, the prophet, provided, promised God's defense. And at their lowest, when they think God's forgotten us, God is distant, He's not a help, He's not going to intervene, it's too late. Where, what are we going to do? God... He's checked out. That night, something mighty strange happens. They wake up at the... Look in Psalm 46. They woke up when the morning dawned. When Moses led the people through the Red Sea, it was when the morning dawned. And when Israel woke up the next morning, they realized that an angel had went through the enemy camp and slayed 185,000 soldiers in their own camp. Friends, this battle is not yours, and this battle is not mine. We are pawns caught up in the middle of spiritual warfare, and the battle belongs to the Lord. And we run to Him for cover. You see, the Bible says in Romans 3 that God will stop every mouth. In other words, the wicked will melt before God like a wax figurine in a furnace. We saw this in Psalm 2 where the nations rage against God and then God steps forward like an unrivaled, fierce champion. And look at what happens. He utters His voice and the earth melts. In other words, God's voice will be as decisive in dissolving the world as it was in creating the world. The world stands aghast at the voice of God. Psalm 29.4, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. 
He brings the nations to nothing. And God's definitive voice to this world is in His Son, Jesus Christ. God's definitive voice in this world is through His Word. And His Word comes with power. I want you to see finally God saves His people. Verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The Lord of all the armies of heaven and earth at His disposal. The Lord is a fortress, a, a high defense, an inaccessible high place. He's a bulwark, which means a high fortress, a defense. In other words, you can't climb over this fortress and you can't climb through this fortress. To get to God's people, you have to go through God. He's the God of Jacob. As we read through Genesis, we realize that the same God who is a proven protector of Jacob is the same God we serve today. I love Isaiah 26.3. You ought to write this down and pray through this verse this week. You keep in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Because He trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. In God's presence, there is secure peace even when everything else is turned upside down. We come to the end of verse 7, and here it is again. Selah. And somewhere or the other, there's something to celebrate here. In other words, we can't just rush forward. There comes a place when we're reading the Bible, when we're hearing God's Word, we just need to stop for a minute. We're not just soaking in raw information. The purpose of this is life transformation. Let this soak in for a minute. Whatever the circumstances of your life and mine, God is our fortress and every other refuge is a lie. And so we have a sure refuge. We have a sustaining river. And I want you to see verse Verse 8, we see that we have a secure rest. Who is the, the ruler of nature? He's the ruler of nations. Look with me in verse 8, and let's bring this to a close. Come behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And here it is again. We begin with this refrain already mentioned. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. As Charles Spurgeon said, God destroys the destroyers. And at the end of the day, He wins. And because we're in Him, we win. But I want you to look in verse 8. This is, not just an in, this is not just a person who's seeing God move in their life. Friends, notice this is an invitation. Come and look. Come and behold. Most of the scholars that I read said that likely here's what was going on. God had slayed an enemy army and laid their bodies bloodied and mutilated in the field. And God's people thinking that God wasn't going to come through because it was too late, 
would watch God move and they would look out at thousands and hundreds of thousands of slain enemies. And it's as if they're saying, you got to come look at this. In other words, there's only, there's some things that only God can do. And that's where we want to live. We want to live at Reformation Baptist Church in the middle of things that can only be explained by God. But we don't want to do things that we can manufacture and do. At the end of the day, we want to step back and look in verse 8 and say, you got to come see this. At the end of the day, I pray that when Adam's preaching and we're, we're singing today, that there's going to be some unbelievers that are scattered in. And they're going to look around at you and I worshiping and singing and listening attentively for three, four solid hours on a Sunday morning when the rest of the world's at the lake. And they're going to see us passionately engaged in worship. And they're going to see an invitation that says, you've got to come and see the glory of God. And they're going to slip in like we see in 1 Corinthians. And they're going to say, you've got to be kidding. God is surely among you people. Because God works justice. Look in verse 8 and 9. He brings desolations. This is not a gentle persuasion, friends. This is a forcible disarmament. Put your weapons down. They say that in the ancient world, what they would do is they would collect all of the weapons of the enemy. And once the battle was done, they would put them in a pile in the middle of the city. And they would light all of those weapons with fire. And as the smoke and the fumes and the flames went up into the sky, it was a signal to everybody around that complete victory has been taken. And when God burns all of the enemy's weapons, He is showing who is in charge. There's been a verse that we've memorized in our home, and I would encourage you to memorize it in yours we sing it. I'll read it to you and spare you my singing. But it's Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots. And some trust in horses. Some trust in bank accounts. And some trust in retirement plans. Some trust in pills. And some trust in alcohol. Some trust in relationships. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Christ will break the rod of the oppressor and He will serve judgment. All of this points to Christ. Because one day, 2 Peter 3 says, that God will set fiery judgment on this world. And Peter says that we're to live in holiness as we await the city of God. I want you to see verse 10. God reigns supreme. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted. I will be exalted. In other words, just as Jesus was on the stormy seas and He said, peace be still, God commands this rage to end. The picture from the Hebrew is this. Do you remember when your children were young or maybe they're young now like ours? And you walk into a setting that is like in our home on a moment-by-moment -moment basis and kids are fighting. They're on a playground and they've tied up. And all of a sudden, the principal, the father, whoever that is, steps into the situation and he says one word and he gives one look. And he says, stop. 
And at that point, it doesn't matter who is right, and it doesn't matter who is wrong, and it doesn't matter who is winning, and it doesn't matter who is losing. If they don't stop, everybody loses. <laughs> and the reason you know they're going to lose is because Daddy's going to get a belt in one hand and a switch in the other, so everybody stops. And what God's saying is stop. We don't know for sure if He's talking to His people in verse 10 or to the enemy, but certainly both. He is telling the enemy, stop now. You are raging against me and I am God and you will submit. Lay down your arms and surrender immediately and they will. And He is speaking to His people and He is saying, Stop walking and running frantically and stop pacing. Be still. And know that whatever circumstance you find yourself in, I'm God. And not that circumstance. Because I'm going to be exalted and not you or your circumstances. Friends, this is not some sort of mystical appeal to be still and to do weird things in yoga and all of this bizarre Eastern mysticism that's flooded into Christianity. That is ridiculous. This means this. Stop running. Stop being frantic. Stop moving from one thing to the next. Slow down. You see, the problem is, as soon as we do slow down, and I'm not preaching to you, now I'm preaching to me, we turn the TV on. We turn Facebook on. We turn movies. We turn social media on. Whatever it is. And then we listen to somebody else's voice. It's as if God's saying, turn all of it off. Get the noise out. Do we live in a noisy world or what? Do we live in a busy world or what? Stop. And that's what we do on the Sabbath. We stop. We listen. And we don't listen for some weird mystical voice. We listen as we read His Word, as we pray, and as we realize that God is still on His throne. And He is being exalted, and He will be exalted over everything. 2 Kings 6, what do we do? Lord, I don't know what to do, but our eyes are on You. God works justice, and finally God provides protection. We end with this final conclusion, verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Martin Luther died on February 19, 1546. On his deathbed in Eisleb in Germany, his last words were this. Our God is the God from whom comes salvation. God is the Lord by whom we escape death. You see, God has proven to be a mighty fortress to Martin Luther. God proved through this psalm to be a mighty fortress to Elizabeth Elliot. Her husband Jim Elliot died at the hands of spears of Indians in Ecuador as he was taking the gospel to this unreached group. And after hearing the news of her husband's death, Elizabeth referred to Psalm 46. She said that everything in my life that seemed dependable has been taken. But God was not taken off guard and we are to be still. Friends, I could tell you one martyr after another who has marched to their stake being prepared to be burned a martyr's death. And the last song 
that they preached, the last text before they preached, was Psalm 46. And war and trouble, I've read in World War I, World War II, saints would gather together to recite and sing Psalm 46. Matthew Henry said, Let all that oppose him see this with terror and expect the same cup of trembling to be put into their hands. But let all that fear him and let all that trust in him see this psalm with pleasure and not be afraid of the most formidable powers armed against the church. Because through faith in Jesus Christ, who bore the wrath of God, we can find refuge in the ultimate enemy. And for those who are believers, God invites us to hide in Him during the storm. God invites us to find strength in Him in the battle. And I would end as we ended last week. There is no refuge from God. There is only a refuge in God. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Help us to be attentive in our listening this morning, in our singing and our praising, and help us to respond to You. And we pray that You would be our strength and refuge, and we pray that we would tell others as we hold out the cup of life and invite the world to drink. In Jesus' name, Amen.